This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we welcome back Melissa Figaro and Alan Minsky from The People's Game for a deeper look into the history and politics of some of the nationalist enmities on display during this World Cup beyond the football. Racist chants and fascist slogans erupted from the Serbian side toward ethnic Albanians on the Swiss team, creating high-stakes tension as Serbian players nearly came to blows with Switzerland's star players, who happened to be Albanian Kosovars. Where was FIFA? Was there discriminatory handling of the fans by the police who seemed uninterested in the offensive gestures, chants, and banners? Who knew that this World Cup would take us back to the Balkan Wars of the 90s following the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the fall of Yugoslavia? I joined Melissa and Allen for some political, economic, and historical background while Melissa and Allen put this in broader perspective in the long history of football as politics and history. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And today, again, we're going to do something completely different. And that is Melissa Figueroa, who is my director, producer, engineer, and many other things as well, is uh, is also the co-host and creator of The People's Game. And we're right in the middle of the 2022 Qatari World Cup and it's an astonishing World Cup because it is, we always say that the World Cup is a political tool. And that's, you know, as as they have shown, a political tool for spectacle. But what's even more so now is that this World Cup, through its matches, has dredged up a lot of sentiment, fear, violence, and other uh, memories of the recent past and not so recent past. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I'm going to turn it over to Melissa, who is not only all of those things that I said, but also she already does so many things. And Melissa is going to turn this around and we're going to try to get a little bit beneath the surface on some of these nationalist displays that we're seeing now in the World Cup. Melissa, it's all yours. Thank you, Susie. Yeah, so uh, I'm Melissa Figueroa. I'm producer of this show and also co-host of the People's Game podcast with Alan Minsky, who was also a producer of this show. We've been doing this show now for 12 years, um, every four years since 2010. And every single World Cup, and, you know, we do watch the Euros in between as well. So, you know, on the two years, it's like the midterms is like the Euros is the midterms of the soccer world. And almost every single time something comes up when it comes to a Balkan team, the Serbians, Croatians, Bosnia, Kosovo, who joined UEFA in 2016, Albania, you know, something comes up. It, that either violence erupts or there is racist, fascist slogans being thrown around. And yesterday's match between Serbia and Switzerland was no different. And the world became really uh, obvious to the world in yesterday's match in two parts. One, where there was an announcement over the stadium PA in the middle of the match that reminded the Serbian fans in particular that racist and discriminatory gestures were not allowed. 
And this was in reference to two of Switzerland's star players, Granit Xhaka and Zerdan Shakiri, who are of Albanian Kosovar descent. So this has always been this political, you know, powder keg within global football that I've always wanted to unpack. I was a teenager during the 90s. I have to admit, I didn't pay a lot of attention to world politics at the time. I was kind of a, you know, nihilist, gothy teenager. (laughs) And so, um, but the more that these incidents happen, the more that I've wanted to investigate them. I've wanted to look into them and understand them more deeply. And of course, yesterday, I realized that uh, we have our own expert here on post-Soviet politics in the region, Susie Weissman here. So I really wanted to pick your brain, Susie, about, you know, trying to get beneath the surface and to the root of this problem that keeps coming up again and again. FIFA has censured the Serbian team for hanging a an, an ultra-nationalist banner in their locker room, all kinds of things. So, but I want to go kind of rewind and try to get as as close to the root as I can. So the first thing I want to ask you, Susie, is we've heard of the many different ethnic factions that are warring in this region. And if the 90s conflict, of course, erupted in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So can you tell us a little bit about what was going on in the greater context, the economic, the political, and also who these people are and you know why they have such a history of conflict? It's a large question, Melissa, and I'll, I'll give it a stab. And that is that in the period when, um, let's say, before the Soviet Union disintegrated and Eastern Europe was its block of satellite nations, as it was called, but there was one place that's uh, Yugoslavia, and that word Yugoslavia just means Southern Slav, and that was a, a federation made up of at least five or six different nationalities and a sub- and several more, and it was held together even though there was some tension, it was held together successfully by Tito, uh, who had quite a lot of popular support. And everybody worried that when Tito died, the whole thing would break up. It didn't break up right away. It took the breaking up of the Soviet Union. And what we saw, you know, in 1989, when the wall came down and it started out when Gorbachev said to all of Eastern Europe, you're going to have to do it your way. We're not going to support you. We're not going to send tanks in. So if you're not popular with your people, you're not legitimate. Well, you're going to have to deal with that. And so one after another of these uh, of countries just fell like a row of dominoes. This was the real domino theory. And it happened without any violence except in two places, first Romania and then Yugoslavia. And it's very interesting. They're different. But Yugoslavia was the worst because a war started off in in Yugoslavia that went on for years. And maybe some people would say even a decade in which you had not just the breakup of these or or the inter-rivalry between these various nationalities, but you also had uh, the leaders especially Milosevic in Serbia, proclaiming a project of greater Serbia. You can make some parallels today toward Putin and greater Russia and the war in Ukraine, including the role of NATO, because at the time, let me just first say that the result of this war was that a quarter of a million people were killed in southern Europe. And the Bosnians and others were begging the West for arms so that they could fight the Serbs and no one would give them arms, not NATO, not not Germany, not anyone. And so they were defenseless. And it's kind of an interesting 
uh, comparison because it divided the left back then just the way the Ukraine uh, Russia conflict does today, slightly differently, but in that, you know, most of us wanted the U.S. and others uh, to help them, to send arms, to let them defend themselves. And they were left uh, to the massacres. Srebrenica was the worst, where the men of Srebrenica were rounded up and taken out and just slaughtered. But then you want, you're asking a different question, too. So what was it really about? And if you look at what happened in, as the Soviet Union collapsed, all of the leaders in the European, in the East European countries went with the market and went with democracy, at least in the beginning. And where that didn't happen was in Yugoslavia, where uh, Slobodan Milosevic, who was not known to be a nationalist or an ideologue, but a man of power, decided to play the nationalist card and to foment nationalism in order to create this uh, greater Serbia project, stay in power and make Serbia you know, the main power. And so what it meant was that Serbia and Croatia first went to war, and then they went to war in Bosnia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And it's also the case that Americans learned geography and the names of places because all of a sudden these wars erupted. And so you could say that Milosevic, I just said that he was more of an opportunist than an actual nationalist. He used nationalism in order to stay in power and get his aims. And then he moved against Kosovo. So after, Kosovo was the last sort of uh, area of this long-term war, and that that's a, holds a very special place. Maybe you want to interrupt me and ask a few more questions. Oh, sure. So when you were talking about how Milosevic kind of fomented nationalism, right, in order to just retain power for himself, and and it's very interesting that you're saying that you know he himself was not an ultranationalist, but he used ultranationalism and fomented it amongst the people. And you know, coming back to how that intertwined twines with football, one of the people that he really relied on to foment that kind of nationalism was a man named Jelko Rajtanovic. And he was the leader of the ultras. So these are, um, you know, sort of the rowdy hooligan fans of different club football sides. He organized the the ultras of Red Star Belgrade, which was the main football club in the city of Belgrade at the time. Now, you know, with clubs, of course, um, there can be multiple clubs per city. So, you know, in uh, Liverpool, you've got Liverpool and Everton, you've got you have many different clubs. Nice. And, and, you know, in football in the world more generally, they tend to represent sort of different social groups. So like in Brazil, where I lived, um, there was like the elite team and the working class team, right? In other places, there's like the, um, well, it's mo mostly a class divide. But in this case, in Belgrade, it was a nationalist divide. So, you know, Milosevic is talking to um, Raj Tanovic, um and organizing the, the Red Star fan base to become primarily a Serbian nationalist kind of force, whereas the other Belgrade team, Partisan Belgrade. Now, I want to mention, too, that the, the teams themselves, the teams themselves were kind of a melting pot of various Yugoslav ethnic, uh, ethnic minorities. And the, t the, the players themselves didn't seem to have that kind of the same kind of rabid nationalism that the fan bases did. But um, the Bad Blue Boys, which is with the ultramas of Dinamo Zagreb, which is in the capital of Croatia, yeah. started working with the partisan Belgrade 
ultras who became then that outlet for Croatian nationalism as well. Um, and there was a man named Fran, uh, I, I'm going to butcher these names, I'm sorry, um, but uh, Franjo Tudman. Tudman was, was the leader Tudman, of the Croatian nationalists. Okay, Franz yes. Tudman. Okay, and so he was heavily involved in organizing those ultras of those football clubs as well. All of that, you know, again, looking from the football perspective, because that's the sort of the only way that I'm learning about it. You know, like you said, <laughs> most Americans, I learn about it from football, right? So yeah. it all came comes down to this match in spring of the 1990 in the Maximirska Stadium between Dinamo Zagreb and Red Star Belgrade. That match never finished because it just devolved into violence it in bloodshed and murder and even now there is a monument at the Dinamo Zagreb stadium that honors the fans who died in this opening conflict but at the same time which i want to yeah. also point up croatia's fan base today is also incredibly racist and you know uh, fascist and awful just like the serbian side are the croatians have been banned from attending their own team's matches for for a long time because you know they've thrown swastikas on the field one time they actually burned a swastika into the pitch itself they have um, made monkey noises at black players from other oh. clubs and other um, national teams that have come onto the pitch so what can you tell us about croatia as well i mean like you know, Serbia had this aggression, but now the Croatian team is equally as bad. So what can you tell me about that? I can tell you that it's all just really awful to hear because uh, you're bringing you're dredging up what happened then. And it was at the time of these when these wars erupted in the immediate aftermath of the breakup of the Soviet Union and then the fall of Yugoslavia, as they called it. It was, you know, whereas I said, uh, Milosevic was not a committed nationalist, but used nationalism to foment to rather to uh, rally troops on his side. Tuchman was the real nationalist among all of these. Tuchman was a Croatian nationalist. This all goes back, by the way, to the Second World War, too, because the Second World War is where you have Croatia and their Ustasha and then on this uh, the Serbians. Uh, and their Chetniks, and these are various partisan armies. That and the Ustasa was affiliated with the Nazis, is that correct? Exactly right. That's where I was going to go. So they were allied more with Germany and the Nazis, and the Chetniks were not, but they were like, you know, but they were equally reactionary, that we have to say, and nationalist. And this sort of was put, you know, this whole sort of inter-ethnic hatred was papered over, but really didn't show itself during the Tito and immediate after years because there was more prosperity. And in fact, if you look at this region, they're all Yugoslavs, they're all Southern Slavs. They just happen to reflect either the religion or the the writing of the language, depending on which empire they identified with when it occupied there. So in Bosnia, you have Muslims who were the elite under the Ottoman Empire, and they ruled in that area. And then you have in Croatia, they're Catholics with the Roman Empire. And in Serbia, they're Orthodox with the Russian Empire. But if you look at the languages, for example, Serbo-Croatian, which is what that language used to be called, the only difference between what the Serbs speak and the Croatians speak is that the Croatians write it with the Roman alphabet and the Serbs with the Cyrillic, you know, and so there's the, the amazing thing for people observing from outside was how they could whip up such such hatred 
and murderous hatred so that you would have it. And, and of course, it, the fact that you're bringing in football or soccer is perfect because that's where, you know, where sports as politics or sports as, you know, usually where politics get vented is an absolutely perfect example. So first and you of have course, it, within the of course, within the economic collapse of Eastern Europe at the time, you have a lot of these idle young men, not so unlike Russia, you know, yeah. and the the what is it? The boxing, the boxing gym boys. Right. <laughs> that became the shock troops now of ultranationalism. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about the World Cup as a place that thing that brings people together, but this is the dark side. This is where yeah, the absolutely the and loyalties in, can tear people apart. And it's up just to bring it to the present, and then I'll go back for a second. But it's absolutely amazing that it had to happen in Qatar, where it looks like either FIFA or the whoever officials in charge were just going to look the other way. And, you know, there's an article in The Guardian that says that that the Serbian fans were sort of given given an open space to unfurl their banners and to shout their racist slogans. But the Albanian Kosovars there were not. And so, you know, you can you can see that all of this tension was probably going to emerge anyway, but could have been prevented. So I just want to go back. So there's these wars that broke out in the early 90s between first the Croats and the Serbs, and then it moved to Bosnia, between the Bosnian mm-hmm. Serbs and, and uh, the Bosnian Muslims. And then and then it goes to Kosovo. But the in Kosovo, which is a province, was a province of Yugoslavia, and of Serbia. Um, this is something that, you know, holds special, uh, almost religious significance from a battle in like 13, I want to say 80 something, not exactly sure of the date, where it's it's integrated into uh, Serbia. But the population of Kosovo is 88 to 90 percent ethnic Albanian, smaller than Serbs and then a few others. And and the truth is that even in this period when the ethnic cleansing was going on in Kosovo, led by by Milosevic, um, he would have had to admit that Serbs had left the region. They didn't want to live there. And even, you know, trying to show it as this, you know, place, this central place in in the mythical greater Serbia. Serbians didn't want to go vacation there. And the truth about Kosovo was that it was economically deprived and poor, extremely poor. And um, the Albanian Kosovars were the ones that were being mostly discriminated against and faced a lot of problems in this period. And they fought this battle. And then in 1998, they took it up again and they wanted to secede from Serbia and they finally did get their independence, I think, in 2008, even though Serbia never recognized it. And they still um, don't to this day. In fact, Serbia yeah. is now under investigation from FIFA for hanging a banner in their locker room that shows a map of greater Serbia, which included Kosovo, and said, we will never surrender it. Um, yeah. So, Yeah, they said they'd never surrender it. But I, I mean, the sort of you know flip side of that is nobody ever wants to go there from Serbia either. But but I mean that's neither here nor there. When they had imperial uh, imperial ambitions, that's the way they got described. Mm-hmm. And and again, you know, it's not the same as what we see today in between Russia and Ukraine. But there's lots of different kinds of parallels um, there. When when one area, very important area, does not want to be part of this greater Serbian project and wants to have 
autonomy. And, you know, at the time I was interviewing Stephen Schwartz, who was a reporter for um, the San Francisco Chronicle, and he went to live in Kosovo and learned the language. And, you know, he would I would put him on on this show beneath the surface frequently. And he'd say, you know, it's if you think about it, and this maybe will have some re- relevance to your listeners. I don't know. Or to all of our listeners, he would say, the Kosovars, the Albanian Kosovars are the Trotskyists and the Serbs are the Stalinists. <laughs> and that, you know, Trotsky wrote this famous book on the Balkan Wars in 1912, and he said you could find it in bookstores everywhere. Well, that would be probably the only place in the world where you could have found it in bookstores everywhere. But it was significant because even the Albanians in the post-Soviet rush were not anxious to join the capitalist world market. In fact, Soviets or workers' councils emerged that were then put down. And so it was always more to the left in that regard. And that was also the case in Kosovo. And so it made uh, this ethnic cleansing that was going on even, you know, I guess it's it's always horrendous, but it makes it even mm-hmm. worse in a sense because it's got this other political undercurrent. Yeah. And um, again, again, tying all of this back to football, like it's it's so interesting how football has been this medium again for this fomenting of the ultranationalism. And then it also continues to weave itself throughout the world and really affecting the World Cup because the diaspora from this conflict, the refugees, the people who had their families killed and had to leave their homes, their kids are have grown up and are now, you know, in in places that are meeting their former oppressors on the field. So, you know, in the case of the Kosovo and the Albanians, again, I I talked about Shaka and Shakiri in Switzerland. Um, And also the Albanian national team, I I forgot to mention, in 2014, uh, the match between Serbia and Albania was actually abandoned. It was a Euro qualifier when a drone went over the stadium, hanging that flag of greater Serbia and basically taunting the Albanians with the pictures of the Serbian knights that 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 conquered the Ottoman Empire and all of that stuff. And yeah, so like the the whole thing broke out in violence before the match even began. And then also Croatia on the, the Croatian side, the goalkeeper for the Canadian national team, Borjan, is a Serb who was driven out of his hometown of Kinin in 1995 by the Croats. And during the Croatia-Canada game this time, they hung a banner that was like a John Deere flag. And they wrote, which is because the Croats used John Deere tractors to basically like demolish the villages and drive the people out and had Kanin 1995 written on it. And it says, and they kind of modified the John Deere slogan to say nothing runs like Boreon. So, I mean, these things are like 30 years old and they are still, you know, just as inflamed as ever. Now, again, we don't have much time left, so I want to go to... Can I just say just one quick little thing about this, you know, which makes it all the more tragic, Melissa, in your dredging up, you know, for for you to like remind me now that 30 odd years on, these ethnic tensions and hatreds are just as as vivid in a way, because the way I looked at it then in the post-Soviet disintegration and the where it, you know, evolved into bloodshed, that it was really all about uh, the legacy of a failed future, that they had no alternative, and they just mm-hmm. descended into this kind of horrific inter-ethnic uh, warfare that, you know, where ethnic, nationalist, and chauvinist sentiments 
first sort of were stirred, fomented, and then simmered and then boiled. And it's not something that's easy to put away. But at the time, I was calling it the expression of nationalism as despair. But, you know, here now you see it. Uh, we're, we're so much, you know, so many years uh, later, and it isn't even talked about in this same way. So it's, it, to me, terribly distressing to hear, you know, yeah. that, that it's being used this way in football. So um, I want to bring this up to the present and the future. There is another Guardian article that mentioned, again, um, because of the Serbia-Switzerland brawl that happened, that um, the the tensions are once again flaring because of the war in Ukraine. And uh, this absolutely has to do with the involvement of NATO. Mm. So it mentioned how in Belgrade, in the Serbian areas, you hear, you see the Z and you see a lot of that support oh. for Putin. And then in the, in the Albanian areas, you see the support for Ukraine. So if you have any comment on that, and then just, is there going to be any end? I know we're now in the oh. second almost third generation of these inter-ethnic, racist, xenophobic tensions. Is there any hope? And is there any hope for the role of football in something like this? Or is it just going to keep inflaming it again and again? Well, I can't really... I I can't really answer that because so much depends on how the struggle, let's say, in this period develops. We're seeing in the United States a resurgence of the labor movement. uh, Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, you know, we saw in 2019 worldwide revolts against neoliberalism, austerity. The pandemic took everything backwards for quite a while. So I would say the fate of nationalism's interethnic tensions and violence will depend on how that struggle eventually, um, you know, mm. um, develops. But just in terms of uh, of Yugoslavia, I think, you know, or not Yugoslavia, let's say the Kosovars, because one of the things in the Guardian article um, about the Serbia-Swiss game was that the Serbs were especially incensed because some of the players on the Swiss side were Kosovar refugees or the children Mm -hmm. of that. Is that right? Yeah. So Shakiri, who scored the goal against them, the first goal against them. And and in 2018, he had actually done this Albanian two-headed eagle gesture in their last game, which he was actually fined 10,000 euros by FIFA for doing so. So he didn't do that this time around. But what he did do was he ran over to the Serbian uh, side and pointed to his jersey with his name, kind of like, this my name. It's an Albanian name. You know, that kind of thing. Um, But the Guardian article also mentioned that there were that Albanian flags were being turned away at the stadium. And yet other things like the like Serbian nationalist paraphernalia, apparently green hats are a symbol. Um, The three fingered salute, which is a thing were were all kind of tolerated until it just couldn't you know it it just wouldn't have it was too obvious and so they had to make that statement to shut it down well i think we're just there just finally to say that what you're showing is the potency of nationalist uh, symbols which are always on display you Mm -hmm. know in sporting events but none more so than in the the world cup and so Mm -hmm. here you're not only seeing these these uh, symbols but you're also seeing the uneven reaction of the authorities in FIFA and in Qatar that makes makes it even worse. You asked me one little question about uh, Ukraine and Russia and about how that'll turn out and some of its similarities, and we just can't answer that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is very difficult to understand uh, or to to 
let's see, to think about a future past the war in which Ukrainians and Russians will find a way, you know, to live with each other, especially knowing Mm -hmm. that uh, Ukrainians were essentially a non-people for Russians. They just are an appendage. They consider their language a dialect. They don't consider it a nation. And and now, of course, they've been they've seen Ukrainian resolve. So it's going to be very hard to imagine. I don't know if it's going to work out in sports so much as in, uh, you know, probably a lot of battles to come. Yeah, and as and and maybe as much as long as there are contests that are kind of elucidated in a nationalist in a national manner, such as again Kosovo joining UEFA as a national team which inflamed Serbians, of course. And then, and so now Serbia and Kosovo are actually no, not allowed to play together per UEFA rules. Wow. So, um, you know, I mean, FIFA and UEFA, um, those, those federations can make interventions, but like you said, they, as long as they are kind of one-sided or they're not kind of equally applied, um, you know, these, these things could continue. So thank you so much, Susie. Um, you have enlightened me. You've helped me to understand and put, you know, what I'm seeing on the field in context. And I hope that it's as good for the listeners as well, um, because, you know, we, we usually don't have memories that last more than a couple of generations. And to remember this and to remember all the people that died and the injustices that happened is, is always a good thing. So thank you so much, Susie. Thank you. And now we'll be joined by Alan Minsky, my co-host and co-conspirator on the People's Game. And we will now turn to just the football. And we want to talk today about the matches on the field, especially the U.S. team. We'll be featuring an interview later that we did yesterday with on the eve of the U.S.-Netherlands match with Pablo Morales. So, hey, Alan. What's up, Mel? Um I just want to follow up on what you and Susie were talking about a little bit. You know, one of the things about American sports culture is it has been in marked contrast to football culture around the world. The United States, uh, for some reason, a kind of like almost collegial ethic has um, always sort of been the order of the day in terms of uh, American sports, whether at the college level or at the professional level between the various fan bases. And there's not the kind of conflict that has existed um, in global football uh, all over the world. Um, ultras are largely, uh, you know, kept apart by the police after before and after games as best as they can. It's uh, become a distinctive part of, of football culture. Um, this, of course, became most famous, though in no way most most uh, extreme, but equally extreme as other places. But it certainly received in the Anglophone world the most amount of attention in the 1970s and 80s around England. And uh, I remember I went to a game, of all things, of Cambridge United. And in you know, laid-back Cambridge, England, They had the, the way the cops kept the fan bases apart was really something to see. And, of course, they were unable to do that throughout England uh, in episode after episode after episode. And the two groups would just go at each other. You know, and up in Glasgow with Rangers and Celtic fans, it's really almost like a pitch war. Of course, one of the things about these kind of battles in a place like the UK is there are no guns. <laughs> so, um, you know, I almost want to refer to Doug Stanhope's very funny stand-up about the difference between the UK and, and the US and that 
in, in the in the UK, people just brawl like crazy. They beat each other to a pulp. And that's because they have no guns <laughs> and because they have free health care. You know, in the United States, you know, yeah. before somebody's going to hit somebody you're like, oh, I could lose a chip and I lose a tooth and I'd be out $10,000. I better think twice about that. Or the guy could be packing a gun. Well, in the UK, you don't have to worry about either of those two things. So they just go at each other. But um, this has been a, and I think the mixing of this, not in the UK where hooliganism, especially in the premiership, it still exists a little bit more in the lower, lower divisions. Um, where there's just less <laughs> capital investment in, uh, and, and also investment in the police maybe channeling fans away from each other. But in continental Europe, so many of the teams, even teams that were once associated with the left wing you know, portion of the working class, um, have really uh, their, their ultra base. Has, um, and it's not true in Germany and the UK or a few other countries, but it's very pronounced in Italy. Uh, it's pronounced in a number of other countries, certainly in, in the Balkan countries and throughout Eastern Europe, where you have a real grip on these uh, young men who go to these games and get uh, subsumed by these horrible right-wing racist politics. And, uh, you know, it's it's a very troubling thing because it's a, it does represent a serious organizing space for the far-right nationalists and the development of a kind of like jackboot culture there. And uh, I mean, it's nothing like the disciplined culture of the Nazis and the Italian fascists in the twenties, in the twenties and thirties, but uh, it pretends to at least have that component as well. A virulently anti-Semitic, uh, virulently racist towards people from Africa and from elsewhere in the world, really, and uh, and then also for their opponents' uh, fans, though the the racist hatred is usually directed in the ways I just described. But you have some real, still serious violence and uh, a violent subculture that exists in a, in a number of the countries. Um, and I fear that this is really the texture of it all, all over the world now. And it's a very, it is probably next to, along with FIFA, you know, and the oligarchic ownership of the clubs, it is as troubling an aspect of global football as any. So I yeah. think it's something that we, you know, people have to be attentive to. And it's and it's very as, as Melissa is so wise to point out. It's clear um, relationship to the rise of the proto-fascist right or real fascist right now around the world. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, just looking at Brazil, where you know that's the football culture that I'm most familiar with. Going from you know Socrates in 1982 um, organizing the fan base of Corinthians and Sao Paulo um, to be these like vanguards of democracy by democratizing the club, you know, by the mid 2000s, you know, they had basically become a gang culture. <laughs> well, I mean, the, there's like. OGs, right? They call it the Gaviois Fiel. And the 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 kind of OGs, you know, have that kind of community oriented spirit, but they're also pretty thuggy as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, you would have literally pitched battles, you know, between like, you know, Gaviois and Botafogo or whatever. And then um, of course, during the Bolsonaro era, the national jersey becoming the symbol of the Tucanos, the right wing. And, you know, now Lula and the left is trying to take that jersey back. Um, because it had become a symbol for the right wing, you know, so these mm-hmm. are they're, they're cultural expressions that can go either way. And it really is a medium of social struggle. Yeah, and if you want to see something also equally disturbing, check out uh, you can find it on the Guardian website, but there's other documentaries, too, about the racist subculture of the ultra fan groups in Israel on some of the teams. Mm-hmm. 
and mm-hmm. it take your breath away when you witness this. And particularly, I know there's one that's very good that's on the Guardian website. If you can yeah. Um, and then, of course, they can always flip like Spartak Moscow, which was a leftist uh, club for many, many decades. And then, you know, during the Putin era, be also be, has become ultra nationalist. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's funny, too, because, you know, and then, you you know, you do have to sort of like welcome the the more liberal sporting culture in a place like Germany, where a kind of team like Bayern Munich, the fan base is still explicitly progressive. They um they tried to interfere with the. The country, for instance, um, having a training uh, uh, contract with Qatar, they did interfere mm-hmm. with it. Uh, they busted up all their their board meetings um, wow. over it. And, uh, and of and course, the board players board with their hands over their mouths, right? Mm-hmm. And in the UK, you have teams where I mean, you know, Gary Neville is being. I'm not very happy with Neville's uh, soft peddling on the Qatari political issues of, of related to this World Cup, but he was very outspoken about, you know, the working class roots of teams like Manchester United, the two Liverpool teams, et cetera. And those fan bases uh, do tend to be very still left labor and proudly so. Um, but, you know, the premiership is very different. Those those stadiums were almost exclusively male, filled in the stands back in the era of the quote unquote hooligans in the 70s and 80s. I mean, you had some some women would go. Uh, now it's, you know, it has sort of been remodeled like American sports events, though the, the stadiums are always packed in, in the UK to be more of a family experience and a family friendly experience. Um, yeah. which, you know, I mean, you know, as, as a core soccer fan and how serious we all take it. I mean, you know, it's, it's not it's not to the same degree as it is in the United States that these are like, you know, they're going to have they do not have the kitschy pumped in Disney-esque music which dominates, you know, between every friggin' pitch at Dodger Stadium these days and every every American social space, it seems, right? Uh, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy in the, in the misery of uh, American reality um, that's always pumped into everything in, in uh, corporate-controlled American spaces but um, or corporate culture control. That doesn't exist in the UK stadiums, but um, it is uh, obviously the, the hooligan era is largely over. Yeah. I mean, you you do see in the MLS, there are some like, you know, people who style themselves as, you know, sort of fan clubs that have, you know, they have their own gear and everything like the Barra Fuerza Verde for the Seattle Sounders, etc. That are, you know, somehow some somewhat organized, you know, along uh, ethnicity or class or whatever. But they are more like, you know, it's almost like a, like MLS clubs are too ultras as motorcycle enthusiast clubs are to the hell's angels you know (laughs) thing so um and and i do want to mention before we go in in terms of this um there a counterpoint to this there are also the anti-fascist hooligan clubs um most likely the i mean most notably uh what's called the alerta network which which is actually where antifa the actual like name came from um which is an alliance of many ultra groups of different sporting clubs liverpool celtic livorno in italy uh fc st Pauli in germany and you know they use the liverpool slogan you'll never walk alone and they actually organize their communities to fight back against the nazis um and the and the rising fascist waves and they protect communities and and also you know go and bang as well because um fighting is what a lot of ultra culture is is about so well um and to just segue over to the games on the field 
you know, today we obviously have the games of, um, you know, made significant underdog United States against Dutch, a traditional powerhouse, and the traditional, very professional Dutch sort of uh, carved the Americans apart on the two first half goals. Um, it almost looked like if they wanted to turn it on, they could score a will, and it just felt that way. But the USA dominated the ball. And the team um, had a bunch of good chances. And by the if you actually add up what would be, you know, good chances to score goals, the USA had more of them. It doesn't mean they were poised to win the game. Um, soccer can play out that way that a team that is behind presses for goals and has opportunities. And everyone that doesn't go in doesn't change the balance of where the score is. And and when they did close down to two to one, the Dutch, unlike in the second game today, which I'll get to in a moment, the, the Dutch scored within a few minutes and shut the game back down. And so it was a, it was a pretty dominated game. Holland scored within the first 10 minutes. And uh, in, in terms of the competition of the game, the USA had a lot of the flow of the play. And in that sense, they played themselves proud as a very young team. And what's key about the USA team is Mexico and Canada didn't have very strong showings, but Canada obviously even being there was a point of great promise. And Mexico showed at the, at the final act of their short stay in the World Cup that they have promised going forward too. Uh, tragedy, by the way, for uh, listeners of, of this show, uh, I've reflected on this a few times, that I think Mexico actually was poised to have a great striker and unfortunately had a tragic injury a few years ago where he fractured his skull and he's never been the same player. But And he won't be around probably in four years to rely on. But the point is, is Mexico, Canada, and the USA, they host the next World Cup. And the USA, this team was very young. And these players established themselves in the national consciousness. And I think we're going to have a lot of hype headed towards 2026 around this pool of players. And it's a very, very promising generation of players. So props to them. Um, and and an extremely, extremely diverse set of players, too. And, uh, and then um, um, as for Argentina, oh, boy, Australia really gave them a game. I mean, they never were behind. But Australia, when they closed it down to two to one, they had some real opportunities, including basically the last kick of the game. They could have tied it on. And you really felt that if it went to extra time, one, maybe Argentina would play their other superstar, Pablo Dybala, finally, if the guy went to extra time. But he sat on the bench. I'm not sure why that is. Of course, I'm partial to him because he plays for my my first ever club side, which is AS Roma in the Syria, but he's a great player and you look him up Dybala. He's, he's a superstar in the game, but I think the coach feels he is too much of a match for Messi and maybe he holds on to him in case Messi gets hurt. And then he would maybe shift. Oh, perhaps. But also he's had an injury recently and he hasn't been on the field, but he's never really featured for the national team as much as you would think he would. And I think it's because Messi's in his way. I mean, again, look up D Y B A L A and you'll see a player who looks a heck of a like, like a player like Leo Messi scoring incredible goals, making incredible passes, dribbling with the ball exceptionally, just, just half a run below Messi. I mean, he's maybe a whole run because Messi's so incredible, but he's an exceptional footballer and really the most accomplished offensive talent that Argentina has on their squad next to Messi, but he hasn't played. Will he play going forward? Nah, I'm skeptical at this point, unless Messi gets hurt. But Australia, what an effort. This is the this is the most B-team squad in the whole tournament, and they really came close to pulling something off. In fact, Argentina's second goal was not made by Argentina, but a complete yeah. boneheaded move yeah. by the goalie of Australia. So yeah. I had to look to see if it was an own goal at first. Well, and just quickly, tomorrow's matches are France and Poland and England and Senegal. Now, 
if you if you just now think about the games that I've listed, Netherlands, USA, Argentina, Australia, those are done. And then we go France versus Poland, England versus Senegal. The next day, Japan versus Croatia, Brazil versus South Korea. And then the final games for the round of 16, Spain versus Morocco, Portugal, Switzerland. Every The way this tournament has worked out this time, every game in the round of 16 has a classical powerhouse football side against an underdog. Maybe the closest pairing is Japan and Croatia, but France and Poland, we know who the prohibitive favorites are, they're the recent champions. England-Senegal, the team that reached the Euro finals are, especially with Senegal's injuries. That would not necessarily be the case if Sadio Mane wasn't injured and they were missing Ghanagay tomorrow too. But England, the prohibitive favorite. Croatia has to be favored over Japan. Brazil over South. Although Africa. I hope they win, given our uh, recent yes. uh, or, or just our conversation that just happened. Well, Japan, Japan has shown that they can take it. And Croatia's getting old too, but of course they made the World Cup finals last time. Brazil versus South Korea, then Spain versus Morocco. Morocco's had a better tournament than Spain so far. Uh, Not to mention a sense. classic colonizer versus colonized matchup. Oh boy, super so. I mean, that is uh, going back to the uh, you know pre-Columbus era of. Uh, Morocco versus Spain in terms of the, the, the Moors in Spain and contestation. The Battle of Ceuta in 1415. There we go. There we go. Whoa. Yeah, that's it. Points to Mel. Many points to Mel there. And then Portugal versus Switzerland, of course, Portugal in recent years and really since the mid-60s has been a huge soccer powerhouse, much more than Switzerland. So you have eight favorites and eight underdogs. And if you do have the eight favorites win, and so far they're two and zero in the games, the world, this World Cup would finally settle into the predictability that has been absent and made it so marvelous to date because we've had a lot of great, uh, great upsets and great performances. So hopefully that will continue. And uh, tomorrow, France versus Poland, England versus Senegal, which is a tough one for me because many respects, those may be my two favorite teams left in the tournament. So there we go. That's our report from the field. And as always, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah, we have about five minutes left. Um, Susie, if you know, I know we we are the sort of football uh, nerds here and we have, you know, all of our information. I know, Susie, you've also been watching this tournament. And um, yeah, I mean, what are your impressions as as a relative normie in the world of football? <laughs> I mean, not even a normie. I, it's it's more sort of dilettantish. I turn it on. I wait for the goals, you know, like so many. But um, absolutely, you know, gripped by this World Cup, as so many are around the world. And then just to go back to what Alan was saying, you know, and I've, I've been astonished by some of these, you know, the, the uh, issues that we brought up in the beginning. And then just wondering, like, do some of these nationalist hatreds get played out because, This is an impossible question, but it it has to do with the quality of the players and uh, whether or not the fans are upset with them and then blame it on that. I mean, how do you see? Because one thing that you did say, Alan, that really struck me, having lived in in Glasgow in the 70s, where if you went, you couldn't go to a, a, a match between, you know, the Celtics and the Rangers because that was class war you know, and it was dangerous. Um, I mean, you could go, but you, you but it was not a place where you would oh, want to go. So much class wars. It was uh, it was uh, ethnic confrontation within the working class. I mean, there might be a slight 
class leg up for the Rangers over the Celtic fans, but they're all well, what we called it religious war. It was a class war that was, um, you know, confused by religious terms. So you had the Catholics and the Protestants. It was a, you know, a, the Northern expression of what was going on in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, with you know, but but that's a but but I mean, it's this. What was interesting to me about what you said is why this has not been present in American sports culture. And mm-hmm. it would be really interesting to me, just on the political side, to hear you elaborate a little bit on whether or not that's changing <laughs> you know, now that the partisan hate hatreds are have changed. So. No, no. I mean, you never you know, Red Sox and Yankee fans never brawled. We had a little bit of that with Dodgers and Giants fans, but I mean, very, very I mean, so minor compared to the scrapes that go on in Europe. Of course, in the United States, I mean, you know, God forbid there'll eventually be some mass shooting at some sports event, right? Because this is America. That seems like a reasonably predictable thought. Um, hope it doesn't ever happen, but wouldn't be surprised when it does. I mean, of course, it's get hard to get, get the weaponry into the, the sporting event, but that doesn't prevent it from happening in the parking lot or something outside a stadium. I mean, boy, I hate to be saying this on live media, but this is America, and I don't think it's it's uninformed speculation, right? Uh, which is just, but but yeah, I don't I don't think it would, I I would be hard pressed to believe that anybody would do anything so psychotic um, for a partisan sports reasons. <laughs> I think it's it would be much more because of the reasons these kind of mass shootings happen in America all the time, and uh, you know the, the resentment of the person, or sometimes now more prominently political far right wing motivations, but. Um, you know, it, it, that's just absent in American sports. You just don't have Lakers and Celtics fans brawling with each other, even in a sport like hockey. I, yeah, I've heard a few times I've heard about fans brawling. But again, don't forget the home. Well, there are larger geographic distances, but not really much between New York and Boston in terms of hockey. And no, I've, I've never really used this very uncommon. Well, part uh, of it, part of it is, I think, that. Uh, American sports are not articulated in the same way. They're articulated more by city. And, you know, of course, many of these were like company teams uh, created by, you know, companies for company towns, you know, that kind of thing. So um, there's there is a weird working class element, but it's more hometown based versus class based so you know you don't have like a dirt like the los angeles derby between you know the rival sports teams but you know and so it's it's sort of articulated a different sense of course you know the 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 what we do experience is rioting when teams win inexplicably you know, <laughs> think of the sports where the brawls happen because i think after hockey the one sport where they're frequent is baseball actually where you oh, see the okay. teams running out of the dugout, you don't see that in the NFL, and you don't really see That's it. True. Of course, it happened famously in once in basketball with the Pacers and the Pistons back, whatever, 20 years ago or something. Um, that spilled over into the crowd. And you had some of the violence in hockey spill over the crowd. But I also think it's because of the absence of away fans at American sports games. I think that's part of it. But I also wonder if it's, um, you know, a lot of sporting culture in America, certainly early baseball, and baseball was the first sport that had you know major leagues with the major cities having clubs that would travel from city to city and play in the united states and in fact that's the oldest sport with that model a little bit even ahead of the british football leagues and extending across the whole country and um so you don't have people but 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 it carried over even in baseball a very working class sport in america at the time and especially as you go into the early 20th century um the 
collegial nature co- followed from the idea that sports was a gentleman's practice that mm-hmm. was sort of inherited from British sporting culture too. And of course, early football was entirely on the elite college campuses. So, you know, Yale, it was the first great team along with Princeton and Yale were the first two great teams in, in college football. So maybe it's a legacy of that aspect of the culture too. I just wanted to ask one question. This is more of a football question. When I t- when I go to the World Cup or when I watch the World Cup every four years, I'm always uh, rooting for the team whose politics I like best of the country. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, I do that too. I'm yeah. So, but this time, what is so interesting is that all of the majors or many of the majors were eliminated and there's been nothing but surprise in this, mm-hmm. at least from, from my perspective, you know, to see some of those early defeats where you got Saudi Arabia, um, you know, beating right. Argentina right. Right. where Belgium right. gets kicked right. out and where you have Germany and Japan, you got all of these games that were just unpredictable, at least, you know, to a, to a non, uh, what we call aficionado like you guys. So I just wondered, like, how do you see these surprises? And, and well, sure- One of the weird things is that I feel a very stronger compulsion to root for Brazil than almost ever in my life. Yes. See, I'm an Italy fan, and I have very little yeah, compulsion to root for Italy. Now, Italy won the European Championships last year, but that's before the fascist government was elected or proto-fascist government was elected this year. Once you have, when Berlusconi was in power, which he fortunately wasn't in 2006 when they won, so it's a weird thing to say now I'm happy about Brazil because Lula defeated Bolsonaro when, okay, so what am I happy about a country with 49% of the country voting for an absolute psychotic fascist? You know, that's, that's nothing to be too proud of there, Brazil. Yeah, I mean, of course, I, I have that. But that the, 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 the most spectacular goal of the tournament was scored by a Lula, the, the single Lula supporter on the team. So, hey. My favorite, my favorite player. <laughs> favorite player pretty much in the whole tournament were Charleston because he played for my club side Everton until last year. But hey, no, but but the thing too about Brazil, I don't, in Brazil, probably more than any country in the world, but in many countries, um, it's important too that I think a victory by Brazil will boost Lula. There's that, That's just undeniable that that will, will occur if, if they win this right now, uh, even though so many of the players supported Bolsonaro. As as was chanted at COP twenty seven and throughout Brazil's back, o Brasil volto. So, yeah, um, you know, for me, I think those kinds of upsets are what the World Cup is all about. Um, and also, like Alan, I root for the teams that will legitimize the leftist politics um, in those countries, and also just the way that the tournament goes. It's this is the place where the the underdogs of the world economy and world politics the formerly colonized can confront their colonizers can confront the economic giants of the neoliberal world um and sock them in the eye <laughs> honestly you know you know the fact that uh united states this is the one place where that crushes absolutely crushes the myth of exception American exceptionalism, right? Is is global football? Well, and, and the only thing about American exceptionalism and global football is that we were on the outs. We were yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're exceptionally game. mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> exceptionally um, not obsessed for the longest time, you know. Right, right. You know, and so and so it is really interesting that yeah, 
we are in a country in which the national tournament of baseball is known as the world series, which is kind of funny. Um, you know, the, the very insular kind of outlook, we are thrown into the culture of the rest of the world and we can experience um, a culture and a history and a shared language that over 6 billion people in this world experience at the same time in the World Cup final. You know, um, I can't think of any other single event that literally brings the world's attention like that. So, you know, it still is, it's a beautiful game. It's a highly, it's a ground of contestation and it is ultimately the people's game. So. There we go. Thank you so much, Mel. Thank you, Susie. Thank you guys.